we celebrate it as Palm Sunday. It's the time when he enters Jerusalem and is recognized by the masses for who he is. We'll pick up in uh, John 12, starting with verse 12. The Apostle John writes, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Father, change us by your word. Prepare us to hear it. Prepare us to live it. Transform us that we might reflect the reality of Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. As we are dealing with this, this coronavirus pandemic, a lot of people are panicking. And it's really not that much different than anything else that we have been dealing with, except for it's worldwide and everybody's focused on the same thing. But all the time we see people focusing their energy on avoiding pain, avoiding suffering. It's a basic urge of human life. And so often, especially those in the world, but even we in the church, very often believe that it's supposed to be different. That we're not supposed to have pain, and yet we know that when sin entered the world, so did suffering. Pain entered the world at that time. 
And as suffering and pain entered the world, we live now forevermore until, until the final day when Christ restores all, thing, all things. We live in a broken, fallen world. A world of pain, of sickness, of persecution and war and bloodshed and violence and deceit and betrayal. And yes, illness and death. We get really worked up about these things, not simply because they exist, but largely because our expectations are different than our realities. We expect something more than what we have. This is why the scripture goes to such great lengths to teach us about contentment. All the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, the Lord spoke very clearly that our calling as those who follow Him is not to be hungry for something else, but to be satisfied in Him. To borrow from John Piper's Desiring God, Christ is most, most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. It's not that suffering is something that is not normal. It is absolutely normal. It is our lot. As we read in, in the books of wisdom, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly. The reality is we have this life that is short and full of trouble. And yet there's a greater glory. There is an eternal life. As we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, these two truths, these two realities are in deep conflict. There is what we see and perceive, and there is what is actually real. As we read, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, the people recognized him as Messiah, and they shouted out things like, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. In Matthew we see, Blessed is the, the Son of David, the King who sits on David's throne. Hosanna to the Son of David. This is the picture that we see of Christ. And they began to recognize in this moment what they had only tinkered with throughout Christ's earthly ministry. That he is exactly the one that God had promised throughout the Old Testament. And yet their praises, fitting though they were, exuberant, passionate, even commanded, did not bring about the greatest glory that Jesus would find. As the leaders told him to keep these people quiet. Jesus said, if they keep quiet, the rocks themselves are going to cry out. Creation is here to praise. And in that moment, it was fitting and right and good. But notice what we read immediately after this. After the, the laying down of the palm branches, the laying down of their cloaks, the shouting of praises... In verse 23, he replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, wait a minute. This is a contrast. The moment of this praising is already past. Jesus has already entered Jerusalem. The event of worship in that moment is over. Moving on, pressing forward, and Jesus says, Now is the hour. Now is when the Son of Man will be glorified. He'll be glorified not in these praises, but in something yet greater, something that is to come. And as Jesus is, is experiencing this and was, uh, was glorified by the people, this was not the greatest of His glorification. That would be yet to come. And as He looks forward to what is about to happen... 
we know, because we can look back on it, we can read the story, we know that the thing that's about to happen is that Jesus will be betrayed. That he'll be arrested, he'll be humiliated and mocked and stripped naked and beaten bloody beyond recognition and left to die on a cross. That's what he meant when he said, when I'm lifted up from the earth. He was indicating how he would die. And when Jesus hung on a pole for the healing of the nations, died in our place, this is the great glory. Notice what he says. Now my soul is troubled, verse 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now, if he were talking about what had just happened, why would his soul be troubled? Why would he need to be saved from the praises of the people, from overwhelming popularity, from what seems to be, in the eyes of the world, tremendous success? Why would Jesus need to be saved from that? He doesn't. The hour from which he would naturally desire to be saved is the hour of tribulation that is about to come. And yet Jesus says that's the hour for him to be glorified. He says that he's not here to call out, Lord, save me from this hour. Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Our core reality for today is pretty simple. I hope we make the connection here. Christ is more glorified in our redemption than in our praise. Christ is more glorified in our redemption than in our praise. The first thing we need to recognize here is that we often miss God's blessing because it does not match our expectations. We often miss God's blessing because it doesn't match our expectations. The people were expecting something. They were expecting Messiah. They had been expecting Messiah for generation upon generation. They knew the scriptures. They knew that Messiah would come, the chosen one of Israel, God's appointed person, who would deliver them from oppression, who would save the people. In fact, they're told specifically that he would save them from their sins, but... That part didn't register as well as he would deliver them from their oppressors. So the people focused in on this great and glorious leader who would come. You can imagine where their imagination would go. Just like with us. They would expect somebody with a dynamic personality. Maybe somebody tall and good looking. Who, who looks like Dwayne the Rock Johnson and speaks with an eloquence that can move the masses. Someone who is strong, probably wealthy, very successful, able to marshal troops to overthrow the Romans. Maybe somebody a lot like King Saul, you might remember King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. When the people clamored for a king, and God said, well, that's not what I have planned for you. If you have a king, you're not going to like how this turns out. Oh, but we want a king. We want to be like everybody else around us. So they chose a king. And the king that was chosen based on human standards, the way kings are normally chosen was a strong, diligent, good-looking individual who was a head taller than everybody else in Israel. That was a sign of leadership in the culture. And so when they chose Saul, he was the perfect candidate to be able to be the leader, the king. But he wasn't who God had in mind. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. And after Saul got caught up in his own hype, God rejected him as king. And he brought in somebody who didn't look the part. A younger fellow, ruddy in appearance, handsome, but not the same kind of man as Saul. 
a shepherd boy named David. Now, when God chose David, David was nothing. He wasn't even impressive enough for his father to bring him out to the prophet to see him. But God chose David to lead Israel. And God, through his own sovereignty, led Israel through David. Saul was not the right choice, but he was what the people expected. You and I miss God's blessings very often because it's not what we expect. Someone once said that, that uh, opportunity is often not recognized because it comes dressed up as hard work. The same thing is true for God's blessings. God's blessings often come in a wrapping of suffering. They come wrapped in difficulty and hardship because the blessings of God are not always what we expect. In fact, I would venture to say not even often what we expect. Sometimes God blesses us through prosperity. Sometimes God gives us success in this world that we might use it for His glory. Other times He breaks us so that we can learn the humility of Christ. Very often He will do one before He does the other so that we can develop a fullness of character. In any case, we don't want to miss God's blessing because it doesn't match our expectation. That's what happened with the people here. Remember, Christ is more glorified in our redemption than in our praise. Christ's glory is not in momentary praise, but in eternal victory. The great victory of Christ was won through suffering, not through popularity or momentary adulation. The suffering of the Savior was the glorification of the King. The people are praising Him, and His focus is forward. He's not caught up in it. He doesn't reject it. He absolutely receives the praise, and when the leaders tell Him to shut it down, He, he rejects their proposal. He is disinclined to acquiesce to their request. And Jesus then not only receives that praise, but He moves on as if it is exactly what it is. One moment in time. And he pursues the purpose for which he came. He identifies it himself. It's for this hour that I came. This troubling hour. This difficulty. When I, like a kernel of wheat, will die and be buried. To produce a great harvest. Father, glorify your name. The Father responds, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And as He does this in Christ, it happens through the unexpected Messiah, the unexpected thing that the crowd had, was not celebrating. Understand this, the crowd celebrated the Messiah they expected. But they would reject the Messiah God sent. Now we're going to look at four things. There are three that the crowd expected, that they celebrated, and one that they, did not, that they did not expect, many of whom would reject this. First, this unexpected Messiah was God's mighty champion. Notice in verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet Him, shouting, Hosanna! Well, Hosanna means save, or save we pray, or God save. And we might think of things like God save the queen, or, or some other uh, statement of, of assertion and celebration. Jesus hears this. He is hearing the sound of the people recognizing Him as God's great Redeemer. Now we might use the word Redeemer in, in a spiritual sense. They're thinking of Redeemer in a broad sense. You and I, if we have a Christian background, think of redemption specifically in terms of being saved from our sin. But the Hebrew people, here in, in this context, the Jewish people, would have understood that 
in the one who would redeem the people, who would buy them back, who would defend them, who would bring about shalom. The Messiah would be God's mighty champion, a warrior, a defender of God, a defender of the nation. And so they say, Hosanna, save. They expected a Messiah who would be a mighty champion. And they celebrated him. Second, we see that they saw him as God's authorized representative. They took the palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a great phrase. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a phrase that was used by the priests for all of the people coming. We see it in the Psalms. As the people come to worship, blessed is the one that are those, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it would be said of the prophets as they come in the name of the Lord. It's said of the Messiah who would come as the representative, as those who belong to Christ, who come as his spokespersons. We see them recognize Jesus as God's authorized representative. He was God's mighty champion. He was God's authorized representative. They had been hearing him teach with authority. He's been going through the land, not only teaching with authority, but backing that up with attesting signs, miracles that would confirm the authority with which he was teaching. God's mighty champion was also recognized as God's authorized representative And they praised Him. They celebrated the Messiah they expected. Thirdly, we see that Messiah is God's promised ruler. God's promised ruler. Turn back to the book of Matthew, if you would. We'll see Matthew's account of this. When when you find Matthew, you're going back to the left. Look for chapter 21. And in Matthew chapter 21, we see his account here, starting with verse 4. After Jesus found the colt and sent ahead uh, to have this colt brought to them, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey was often used for kings to enter in victory, declaring peace. The donkey was a sign of peace. And Zechariah had prophesied to daughter Zion that their king, the Messiah, would come gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Jump down to verse 9 and we see what we saw in John. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Notice in Matthew's account, Matthew is writing primarily to Hebrews, that he points out specifically this Hosanna to the son of David. Now that's significant because the son of David, David the great king, God had made a particular covenant. We call it today the covenant. He made a promise to David Let's turn back to the left a bunch more. We're in the New Testament. We're going way back in the Old Testament before the Psalms to 2 Samuel. We see the books of history in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. We're in 2 Samuel and we're going to look at chapter 7. In 2 Samuel, chapter 7. The ark has just been returned to Jerusalem after a time away. The people are celebrating. David is excited. And he wants to build a a, uh, 
temple to the Lord. Beginning at uh, verse 1, David is torn, torn by the fact that he's living in a good place and God's in a tent. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now pause before we continue and notice that this sounds like the promised land, but they've already come to the promised land. This is long after they left Egypt and entered Canaan. And God is promising something that will not happen in David's lifetime. He makes a promise to David that David doesn't actually get to see fulfilled. Paul points out in the latter part of the book of Romans that God is still keeping his promises to Israel and God will bring about everything that he has promised. The picture we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the picture of Messiah. Let's keep reading. Still in verse 11, the Lord declares to you, this is where the promise begins, the Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. Notice David wants to make a house for the Lord. And God says, hold on, wait a minute. Something ain't right. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. God will do it. I don't need your help, David. I will do this. Let me just stop before I move on from this point. This is free. It's not not in your outline. But we need to understand, this is the picture that we see over and over and over and over and over and over again. If I had more overs, I'd throw them in, but I'm out of breath. God does the doing in blessing his people. He calls us to follow him. He calls us into right relationship with him. And as a father to his children, he says, if you love me, you will obey me. But Israel didn't earn credit with God. He didn't choose Israel as his people because they were great and mighty and wealthy. Just the opposite. He said, you are nothing when I called you out. He goes to great lengths in Ezekiel to point out just how wretched and poor and blind and naked Israel was before he made them a great nation. The same is true for you and I. In our sin, we have nothing to offer God. We can't turn to God. We're not, we don't have it in us. We're not good enough. We're not righteous enough to desire Him. Our sinful hearts are hostile to God. God says, I will do it. I will come into you and I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Here with David, he says, let me just tell you, David, what the Lord himself will do. He will establish a house for you. Verse 12 is where we see this clearly. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
In the short term, we see Solomon. In the long term, we see Messiah. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Solomon will do that. Christ will build a spiritual house in the church. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, Solomon does not have a house that stands forever. He does not reign forever on the throne of his kingdom, but one from David's line will. This is the important Davidic covenant. Not only is the Messiah God's mighty champion, not only is he God's authorized representative, but the people are recognizing him as the son of David, God's promised ruler. But there was one thing they didn't celebrate that they couldn't understand yet. And in short order, the masses would reject this Messiah because they were expecting a Messiah to come establish a kingdom right now that we recognize right now, that overthrows our oppressors, our, our oppressors right now, that removes our suffering right now, but God has a much longer view, a much broader perspective. And He gets to see it all. Lastly, we see the Messiah is God's acceptable sacrifice. They celebrated God's mighty champion. They celebrated God's authorized representative. They celebrated God's promised ruler, but they could not recognize God's acceptable sacrifice. And even today, most people love the idea of Jesus. As long as it's a Jesus that makes sense. If it's a Jesus that looks like a some kind of a parallel to Hercules. If it's a Jesus that seems a lot like a Superman type character. If it's a Jesus that fits our expectations. Oh, we, we love to celebrate that. We love Christianity when we get to manipulate it into our own thing. But when God does the unexpected, when God says, you don't have the free will you worship so greatly. You're not free to repent and to choose me because you are too broken. You're not capable of it. When we promote that kind of a free will that turns into an idol that keeps us from God, it's a little bit like telling a quadriplegic, you have free will regarding your ability to walk. Just get up out of the chair. Positive thinking will carry you through. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't be paralyzed. But that's not how reality works. In reality, a crippled person does not have free will to choose different circumstances. There are things that they simply cannot do. And no amount of choice can get them there. Sinners cannot, not because God doesn't allow it, but because we are incapable of it, we cannot choose Him. It requires God changing us from within for us to even have a desire for Him. Unregenerate people do not desire the things of God because the mind that is subject to the flesh wants things that are contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, moving in us, desires things that are contrary to our flesh. For this reason, when Messiah, our hope, our salvation, comes disguised, if you will, not as a king of glory, but as a suffering servant who is afflicted and despised and rejected. We don't want that. We don't 
would you really want to serve a loser God? Because that's the picture we have. Well, that kind of Jesus is a loser. I thought we were supposed to be strong and prosperous and healthy and wealthy. And we're supposed to be having more fun than anybody else. Well, there's a sense in which that's right. When my eyes are focused on heaven and I see past this world, then the glory that is coming can take me to a place of joy that no other person can experience. But in this world, we're called to suffering. They missed out on the picture of Messiah as God's acceptable sacrifice. If you're still in 2 Samuel, turn to the right. If you're back in John, turn to the left. We want to go to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. If you're not sure where that is, go to the middle of your Bible and find the Psalms and then go a little bit to the right. Just a few books past there. I wanted to shorten this, but I get too excited, so I'm going to going to read this from verse 1. Who has believed our message, Isaiah writes? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry, dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't the right kind of Messiah. The Messiah that would come, this is written 700 plus years before Christ on the earth. The Messiah that would come would not be the one that they expected. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. Today, as you hear this message, as you celebrate Palm Sunday in whatever situation you're in, you may be wanting to celebrate a Messiah that isn't the real thing. A Messiah that doesn't exist. You may be wanting to celebrate a Messiah who fits your expectations and if there's one thing I know for sure about God is He laughs at our expectations. Always has. It's almost like He goes out of His way to prove our expectations false. But He has given us Himself. He has given us Messiah to do what Messiah was always supposed to do. What does a champion do, a redeemer do? He defends, he goes to war, he wins victories, he delivers the people. What does the authorized representative of God do? He brings the truth of God to bear on the current situation. He connects the reality of God with the realities of life. He speaks God's word into our current moment. Whether that be a prophet, a worshiper coming to the temple, a king ruling on God's behalf, the Messiah himself. What does God's promised ruler do? He asserts the authority of God rightly. We see the picture in Isaiah 9 of, of this coming Messiah. We often preach that passage at Christmas time, but it's really a second coming passage. 
That He would be the Prince of Peace. That He would come and He would rule. But the peace would come through His iron scepter. So far, so good. It's the sacrifice that's the sticking point. But understand this. It's that sacrifice. What looked like a loss. Palm Sunday looks like the greatest day in the world, right? Everybody's celebrating Jesus. Everybody's out here cheering and yelling. And, and they're in the streets and the children are playing and singing songs about him. Good Friday seems like the worst. What a terrible, terrible day. Turn to Romans 3 and perhaps we'll get a different perspective. As you read in Romans 3, I pray that you will see that it's only through this acceptable sacrifice that Messiah can accomplish the purposes of the first three expected points. Romans chapter 3, let's begin with verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, this righteousness, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is not new. This isn't a novel religion coming up in Christianity. It is what God had always said. What Judaism too often today, especially rabbinical Judaism, misses is what the actual teachings of the Scripture pointed to in the first place. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, made known through the law and the prophets, now made known in Christ. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through, notice this, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He's our mighty champion. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That sacrifice of atonement comes as we read, through the shedding of His blood. The sacrifice of atonement requires the shedding of blood, just as it did in the book of Leviticus, as it always did in, in Israel's history. The sacrifice that paid for, so to speak, our sins, that took away God's righteous wrath, His anger toward us as sinners... What appeased that wrath and allowed God's people not to be His enemies but to be His own required a blood sacrifice. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the message of Messiah. This is the gospel. God did indeed send a champion, a representative, a ruler. But those roles were fulfilled in what He did at the cross for us. And in affirming this reality, God raised Him from the dead, conquering death, so that we can say with Paul, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Why can we say that death has no power, no, no sting, no bite? Because the sting of death, the power of death, is sin. It's the law which is there to govern sin and when sin has been removed by Christ on the cross, death has been overcome. That's the glory of Easter. 
that we'll celebrate next Sunday. But as Christ followers, we should be celebrating every Sunday, in fact, every moment of every day, living in the power of His resurrection because He has overcome the grave. He has overcome our moments. He has overcome our temporary situation with a glory that is eternal, that is bigger than we can even imagine. Paul says the suffering we're going through now, as bad as it is. And he went, Paul personally went through some terrible things. As bad as it is, it's, it's like a, a momentary affliction. It's light and temporary and not worth comparing to the eternal glory that will be revealed in us. But none of this is possible without the suffering of Christ. His glory was not primarily in this momentary praise of the people and the popularity that went along with it. The glory that Jesus spoke of in John 12, this greater glory is reflected in Philippians 2. When he empties himself, you don't have to turn there, but you can do that for your homework. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes that our relationships with one another should be governed by the same attitude, the same mindset that Jesus had. 2 verse 6, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or to be grasped in another rendering. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That seems like the lowest place a person could be, and yet this was the purpose of Messiah. Read on in verse 9 if you're following. If you're doing it for your homework, you can catch up later. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Wherefore? Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, for that reason, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of that is right there in John 12. When we celebrate Palm Sunday, we should recognize Good Friday. It's it's right there in front of us. And we should recognize Easter because this is the conquering of death. This is the glory that is at the heart of the gospel. Christ is more glorified in our eternal redemption than in our momentary praise. They expected the Messiah, but not this one. Jesus comes then and now on His own terms, not ours. They expected Him to reign, but their view was too small. They only saw temporal things, the things of earth, human things. Christ is King over all things, even eternal things. Maybe your view of Christ is too small. If you are expecting Jesus to make your life better, I'm going to start going to church because my marriage is a shambles. I'm going to turn to God because I've got this sickness. I'm going to turn to God because I lost my job. Maybe your view of Christ is too small. If you think that He is a tool, a rabbit's foot, or a vending machine, then your view is too small. If you think that He's here to fix your temporary situation, then your view is too small. He may well do that. He longs to pour out blessing on His children. But the glory is in the redemption, the eternal redemption. When we give up control, when we give up our focus on these temporal things, and we say, Lord, I'm yours. Do what you want with me. Just save me. Make me, make me all in with you. Father, take my heart. 
Change it. Reign in me. You're already king over everything. Be the king of my heart. That's when we see glory in eternal redemption. Christ the King did not come to assert himself as king. He didn't need to. He already is. And one day that will be revealed when he returns. But he came to redeem us by laying down his life for us. The Lion of Judah came as the Passover Lamb. He didn't come to receive praise, but to save sinners. Mark 10, 45, our memory verse for today, says that even the Son did not come to be served, but to serve and to make His life a ransom for many. We must not worship the King we expect, a God of our own design, but the King who actually is. We must respond to the full reality of Christ. We often think that pain and suffering are anomalies, something to avoid at all costs. The life and ministry of Jesus show us the opposite. The Master sets the tone. Don't miss that. The Master sets the tone for all of us in not only enduring, but embracing suffering. In this world, he said, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Whether our current health crisis or any other hardship, they all pale in comparison to the incomparable riches of God's grace to us in Christ. We must surrender to His will until the one who reigns over all of creation reigns over our hearts, minds, and lives. Let's pray. Father God, You have given us Messiah. You have given us this champion, this representative, this promised ruler. But most importantly to us in this moment, you have given us an acceptable sacrifice offered on our behalf. Father, you did this. You did the doing. It's by grace that we're saved. Alone. Through faith. And even that's not of ourselves. But it's your gift. So there's no room for boasting. Lord, remind us that Christ is more glorified in our redemption than in our praise so that we embrace His suffering and we handle all the suffering in our life with that in view so that we can truly be Yours. We pray this in the name of the One who made His life a ransom for us. The name of your son, Jesus. Amen.